This story is not about giving Jesus what you have and He will multiply it. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that you can either look to yourself or you can look to God. One of the two. But you can't look within yourself and say, well, I've got part of this. Let me give it to God and God will expand it. So he sees this deep need. He has compassion. He began to teach them many things. Verse 35, and when it grew late, so that's the end of the Jewish day, about to begin a new Jewish day at sunset. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. There's the same word again, Eremos. This is a wilderness. This is a deserted place. And the hour is now late. Verse 36, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So takeaway number one, we don't tell Jesus what to do. I mean, is that just a basic takeaway from that verse? They're telling Jesus, Jesus, here's what we need to do. You need to send them away. They're all listening to your teaching. It's time to wrap it up, Jesus. Send them away so that they can get home in time or get to a village in time before it's dark, before all the, the Jewish shops have closed up and they can buy themselves something to eat. They give Jesus these orders, these instructions... And in essence, they want Jesus to bless their plans. They want Jesus to bless their, their, uh, well, let's just put it for what it is, their disrespectful command to him. Now, we can see this a couple of ways. We can say, well, send them away and have them buy something to eat. We might say, well, we can't read the tone of their voice in that. How do we know that they're being disrespectful? I think we know that because this is the context that Mark has built up from the beginning. Mark has consistently showed the disciples as not getting it, not understanding, and in fact, oftentimes being quite rude and disrespectful to Jesus. Think about chapter 1. Chapter 1, after the day of healing, Jesus goes off before the sun comes up. He's praying. They come and they say, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. And they don't say it as though, you know, hey, Jesus, we're so glad we found you. We're so excited. Everybody's, everybody's asking for you. No. Here's their tone. Jesus. What are you doing here? We got this thing going yesterday. Now, what are you doing here? You're messing all this up, Jesus. As though they are Jesus's counselor and instructor. And of course, that continues on as uh, we hear from the disciples. They say, don't you care that we're about to drown? I don't know how you spin that in any other way other than disrespectful and unbelieving. Don't you even care, Jesus, that we're about to drown? A little bit later, the disciples are going to show their their uh, misunderstanding and their impulsiveness when they take it upon themselves to claim that they know the mind of Jesus when Jesus is teaching and some people bring some children and they say, no, 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 no. The, the master doesn't have time for this. He's only got time for the adults. Take these children away. And Jesus rebukes them in essence to say, you don't know my mind. So we see again and again that these disciples, you know, if you had this picture in your mind of these disciples as these super holy 12 people that Jesus picked because they were so holy and they were so with it and they they were so close to God, get that out of your mind. But that's not why Jesus picked them and that's not who he picked. In many ways, it's though he picked the dullest ones he could pick. He picked the ones with the least amount of spiritual insight because he wants to take them 
from that and he wants to instill with them his spirit, which will then in Acts chapter 2, as Peter will stand up and declare to the crowd in the Sermon of Pentecost, what a change we see over that man then. So we see that send them away, Jesus. They say to Jesus, send them into the countrysides and so they can buy themselves something to eat. I hear something of their impatience there with the crowd. Maybe the, the disciples have sort of had their fill of the crowd at this point. So let's be, I guess, maybe a little bit understanding of the disciples. They do sin against the people as they want to send the people away. But let's be a little bit understanding because Jesus himself recognized that the disciples were very exhausted. Remember, it was Jesus' idea that they go away for a time of rest. So Jesus himself has seen that they are exhausted and in need of rest. So it goes without saying that if Jesus said they needed rest, that they did need rest. And we can imagine now that they didn't, not only did they not get the physical rest, but they're now at the end of another long and tedious day and they, they're just exhausted. So in this, we see, I think, something helpful just to remind us of something that you instinctively know. If the Spirit resides within you, you instinctively know this. It's this. You have different areas of influence in your life. When you sin, it's nobody that sins but you. When you sin, it's your own heart that sins. Nevertheless, there are recognizable influences. There are recognizable temptations in our life. And we can understand that not all influences in our life are the same. For example, picture in your mind a bullseye target. So, you know, you have, you have this bullseye in the middle and you have these concentric rings. And the further you get away from the center, you know, the, the less, uh, the further it is from the bullseye. As you get further from the center, just think about the influences of your life and how they, they exert less influence over you. So on the outside, you have influences in your life that, that might influence you to sin, such as demons, the demonic realm, uh, those sorts of things. They can exert an influence over you, but quite frankly, not a lot. If the Spirit resides within you, then that's not a great deal of influence at all. But inside of that, you have another circle of influences, and that has a much more powerful influence over you. In that circle, let's put family and friends and peers and culture. That's a pretty big influence, right? When your friends or loved ones or a spouse, that's a great deal of influence. And you can be, again, if you sin, it's you. It's your heart and nothing else. But nevertheless, you can be influenced more by a spouse than you can someone, something on the outside circle. Okay. So as we come further in, we have more and more influence. So in the very center circle, again, if you sin, it's only you. But the very center circle, that which exerts the most influence over you is your body. And you know this to be true. You're tired. You don't feel good. You got a bad cold, bad sore throat, headache, hungry, hadn't eaten for 10 hours. Don't those things exert a great deal of influence? Aren't those the times that you most quickly sin with your mouth? When your body doesn't feel good. So that's just something for you to know about yourself, that you have... Your heart is the only thing responsible for your sin. Nevertheless, there are influences, but they're not all the same. And the most powerful influence is your own body, that within which you reside. And so these disciples, 
This is exactly where they are. Their bodies are tired. Their minds are tired. Their voices are tired. They've been talking all day. It's probably hot, uncomfortable, and they're just exhausted. Now, they answer Jesus, send them away to the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. Verse 37, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. Now, that's the most shocking statement in the story. You give them something to eat. Remind yourself of the immediately preceding context. The immediately preceding context was what? The apostles return after being sent out by Jesus and having been given the same miraculous powers as He has been performing. Do you remember that? That just happened at the beginning of this whole episode was they returned and they returned beside themselves with excitement saying, Jesus, what you said is true. The, the demons, they run when we cast them out. We healed sick people. We cleansed lepers. Right on the heels of that, the disciples come and they say, Jesus, send these people home. They're getting hungry. We don't have food for these people. And Jesus answers, why don't you feed them? What did you just get done doing? You give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of food or bread and give, them, give it to them to eat? So the denarii, we're probably familiar with the fact that that was considered the wages of one working day for a working man. So, so 200 days worth of, of working income. You want us to spend that much money and even then only have enough for, for everybody to get just a little bit? So they, ex they expressed to their Jesus, to, to Jesus, their inability to do what he just commanded them to do. He gives them this impossible command and they express to him, how are we going to do such a thing as that? That reminds us of the words of Moses. Remember the words of Moses, Numbers chapter 11, when the people are in the wilderness and God has been feeding them with the manna and they've been eating manna for morning, noon, and night for week after week and month after month and they're so sick of manna. They've cooked manna every way they can think of cooking manna and they're just sick of it. They're so tired of manna and they come to Moses and they say, give us meat to eat. And Moses cries out to God, God, where am I going to find meat for these people? How am I going to feed these people? And here are the disciples coming to Jesus saying, where are we going to feed these people? Where are we going to get food for these people? You see the connections. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the greater Moses. He takes the people into the wilderness. He teaches them as Moses taught them. He feeds them as Moses couldn't feed them. Moses could, could call to God and say, God, your people need food and God would feed them. Jesus, however, is the greater Moses. He takes the people into the wilderness and he himself feeds them. And it's his disciples who cry to him, how are we going to feed these people? And Jesus will then feed them. You see how Jesus is being shown to us as the greater Moses. How are we going to feed these people, Jesus? 200 denarii won't buy enough for each person to have just a little bit. Now in John's gospel, chapter 6, Jesus actually probes them with a question. He tests them with a question. Take a look at John chapter 6, verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, 
So Jesus, this is the beginning of the teaching day. He sees the crowd forming. And in advance of this long day of teaching, Jesus turns to Philip. Philip, you see these people coming? How are we going to feed them? And then John goes on to say, he said this to test him, for he knew what he was going to do. So you see what Jesus did there? At the beginning of the day, he leans over to Philip. Philip, this is a big crowd. I'm going to be teaching all day. How are we going to feed them? Now, Philip's been thinking about that all day, probably. All day, Jesus has been teaching. And, and Philip, he's reminded from time to time as, as maybe he gets a little bit hungry and he thinks, oh yeah, Jesus asked me, how are we going to feed these people? I don't know. How are we going to feed these people? He's been wrestling with that question all day because John says, Jesus wanted to test him. And he put it to Philip. Philip, these people who are coming to me, these people whom God has called unto me are going to have needs. How are we going to meet them? And as Philip is wrestling with this, the same thing is what God does for us. God wants us to wrestle with this question. He wants us to feel the need, to sense the need of those whom God is drawing to us. And He wants us to, to wrestle with this question, how, we will, how will we meet the needs of those whom God brings to us? And there's only two answers to that question. The only two answers are, Look within yourself or look to God. Those are the only two possibilities. Look to yourself or look to God. And this is the point. This is the central point of this section of the story. You can look to yourself or you can look to God. When God brings people, when God draws people unto His church, those people will come with needs. How are you going to meet them? Will you look unto yourself Or will you look unto God? You give them something to eat. So notice how Jesus, of course, recognizes the truth that James brings to us. James chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving him the things needed for, for the body, what good is that? What good is it when hungry people come to you and all you give them is spiritual food? Or 1 John chapter 3, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how will God's love abide in him? So Jesus, of course, as we said, recognizes the primary need, the central fundamental need, but he nevertheless doesn't ignore the secondary need, which is to say their bellies are empty. So You give them something to eat. He gives this impossible command, simple but impossible, and then He watches to see to where they will turn to have the need met. And where do they turn? Verse 38, He said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they went and found out, they came back and they said, Five and two fish. So the direction that it's turned to is inward. What can we do? What can we gather? How much money do we got? Let's pull our resources. Could we pull this off if, if we wanted to? How, how many people could we feed? How much food could we get for each person? What, what could we do? So they turn inward. They turn inward, first of all. What do we have? So they find the five uh, loaves and the two fish. Now, as they come and they say, five and two fish, what, what sort of attitude do you think that, that that statement had? I think that statement had an attitude, don't you? 
I think it was, we told you so, Jesus. We, we told you. Jesus, we told you to send them home when it was still time for them to get home. Now, I, I told you, all we got is five loaves and two fish. So I kind of hear that consistent with how Mark is presenting to us the picture of the disciples. They come to Jesus with this sort of, I told you so attitude, five and two fish. And there's their statement. Now, now we know uh, where the five loaves and two fish came from, right? Mark doesn't tell us, but John tells us about the boy who had the five loaves and the two fish. So we all know, don't we, the story of the boy who shared his lunch with Jesus. How many sermons have you heard about the boy who shared his lunch with Jesus? And so the point is, give Jesus what you've got and he will multiply it. Everybody heard that? All right, so... John is the only one who mentions the one who has the loaves and fishes. And John says in John chapter 6 and verse 9, there is a boy, this is the disciples talking, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? That's all that's said about the boy who shared his lunch with Jesus. Now the word that John uses for boy is just as often translated young male slave as it is boy. So it's at least equally likely that what they were reporting to Jesus was not a boy willing to share his lunch, but what they were telling Jesus was that they found a young slave selling food. You know, anytime there's a crowd, what's going to happen? Somebody's going to be selling something, especially a third world country, right? Whenever there's a crowd, somebody's selling something. And in this crowd, there are young slaves that are selling food. There's a big crowd, big market there. So... I find it much more likely that what the disciples are reporting is that there's one last person selling food and all he's got left is five loaves and two fish. So do you see how difficult it is to build a whole theology about give Jesus what you've got and he'll multiply it? This story is not about giving Jesus what you have and he will multiply it. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that you can either look to yourself or you can look to God. One of the two. But you can't look within yourself and say, well, I've got part of this. Let me give it to God and God will expand it. If that's the point, then you miss the point. Because the point is not about a boy who shared food supposedly with Jesus and Jesus multiplied it. Much more likely as the disciples were saying, well, the last bit of food that somebody's selling is five loaves and two fish. We can get that, but... Everybody else is sold out. 